Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. So good of you to come and join with us and share your evening and your time with us. Mark has a great show tonight. You're going to thoroughly enjoy it. He's got one of my favorite authors on with him. But before that, I want to thank Ken Quiethawk for his amazing intro. He and his wife have an amazing website, nativestorytellers.com. And it's a, a modality that everyone should experience. Try listening in on some of their stories and understand how they held and they they shared their history and their mythology with stories that were given generation to generation to generation. They're amazing, they're phenomenal, and it's a wonderful way of passing history from generation to generation. So please feel free to check out that website and listen to that unbelievable voice. So, Mark, welcome to the show. You've got a great guest tonight. Hey, how are you? Oh, yeah. Fabulous. Um, did, have you been having a good week? Oh, so far, so good. Yep. Okay, good. You know, we've uh, been collaborating on shows for, it's like uh, 14 months now. <clears throat> and of the, what, 58 shows we've done, unless uh, YouTube's taken down another one because it was just too good. Um, yeah, that's true. Yeah, you know, uh, we just had too much information in that one. Um, you know, uh, contrary to the rumor, I've never done one of those fifty-eight shows naked from my garage. Just want to let you know. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, you've seen our guest investigating giants on the Vieira Brothers Lost History of the Giant show. That was on the History Channel a few years ago, and he and Hugh Newman were investigating the outlying stones associated with the Upton Chamber. Uh, and he's becoming a staple on Nightlight. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, David Brody just published his 12th novel, 
It's the uh, and it's entitled uh, Treasure Templari. It's the tenth novel in his um, Templars in America series. Uh, he is an attorney and former director of NERA, and you can learn more about David by going to davidburybooks.com. Hi, Dave. How are you? Good evening, Mark and Barbara. Good to be with you guys tonight, and I, too, am not naked in my garage, so that's good news. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we just have, yeah, we just have to clarify that. We had a incident recently. <laughs> no, you know what? I don't think I even want to hear it. I'm just going to make the comment. I'm, 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 I'm not in my garage. I'm at my desk in uh, suburban Boston, up on the north shore of, of Massachusetts, and uh, looking forward to spending two hours with you guys. Okay. Yeah, we uh, we better uh, get Leave into. There. Leave it there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The uh, book book review before <clears throat> the censors. Um. Take this show down too. Uh, it, it, and I, I think the you know, a lot of the listeners are probably going to be more familiar with uh, tonight's topic: uh, you know, the socio-economic religious background of uh, you know, your book. Uh, Treasure Templari, then and they may realize uh, as we get started. Um, you, know, it, it, you know, a lot of the listeners, uh, you know, probably remember, you know, reading Chaucer's The Canterbury Tales. Um, you know, the wife of Bath had been on a pilgrimage to uh, Cologne, which is. Uh, uh, so supposedly, the resting place of the three wise men. Um, she wore the latest fashions from Ghent. Uh, ah, the the merchant, okay. yeah, yeah, the merchant also ha- had some of the latest fashions from Flanders. Uh, the yeah, the best of all the tales, you know, the partner's tale, uh, was set in uh, Flanders and. Bruges was the setting of the shipman's tale. Uh, so you know, these nor- northern European settings are only what, uh, what about two generations? What maybe only thirty years uh, apart from you know, the writing of the Canterbury Tales and you know, like the thirteen. Mid thirteen eighties to the what uh, like mid thirteen nineties, and the Ghent altarpiece was written in uh, the what uh, or the the uh, Ghent altarpiece was painted in the uh, what fourteen twenties. We aren't talking. Yes, you're right. So so the Ghent altarpiece. Um, a very famous piece of art um, was painted in, in Ghent, Belgium. It was begun in the 1420s by the brothers Hubert okay. and Jan van Eyck, and they uh, was finished around 1432. Um, okay. Right. So that that that's sort of the trigger to this entire this entire novel, Treasure yep. Templari. And uh, and and I and I thought you were going to go a different direction, Mark. I thought you were going to say your your listeners are familiar with it because. 
they saw the movie The Monuments Men back in 2014 with with George Clooney and, and Matt Damon and Bill Murray because um, that you know that was a famous movie and, and it, where where after World War II the Allied forces go in and, and, and recover the stolen art that the Nazis took and and this piece of art the Ghent altarpiece is is featured prominently in that story so you went back to the Canterbury Tales but I thought you were just going to go to Monuments Men with, with your with your story there so uh, you had me go in the right direction. Now, uh, now I was trying to I- incorporate that ten years of college. You know, my parents want to see some kind of uh, div- dividends uh, from from uh, the, the, you know, those ten years. But, you know, I heard the the uh, English uh, blog talk uh, Robo Babe is uh, going to double my salary this year too, but. Uh, no, it's you know I was just trying to work in something where you know there is a, you know kind of a contemporary uh, thing between Chaucer and you know, the Van Eyck brothers, um, but it, it, it you know there is that you know in your your book there is a shift from you know where the renaissance was you know really kind of taking off in italy and in northern europe was you know just it was just kind of uh budding there but you know we have a lot of really interesting things happening you know, some of the uh, uh relics are being moved up, uh uh it, uh to the northern european uh uh, cities like you know Cologne and uh, yeah, what, what, places like that. What what people don't realize when people and let's, let's back up and give it sort of an establishing shot here. You know, I write all I write a lot about the Knights Templar and and you know what happened mm-hmm. during the 200 years of of their of their prominence and then also what happened after they were outlawed. You know, why were they outlawed? How did they reach such prominence to begin with? What happened to their treasures afterwards? But what people don't realize about the Templars, people associate them with, with being uh, mostly from France. And, of course, a lot of them were uh, French. But a, a lot of them also came from an area we now call or was called Flanders. And that's the area in, in Belgium and the Netherlands uh, where, where a lot of this, this – like, for example, this painting, the Ghent. You know, Ghent is in that area, Bruges. But there was a huge Templar presence there. And as you said, Mark – a lot of the relics that came from the Crusades ended up coming up uh, into that area of Europe. Mm-hmm. There's, there's a great um, little church in Bruges called the Basilica of the Holy Blood, where apparently a, you know, mm-hmm. a, 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 a little vial of, of Jesus' blood is displayed, and, and, and tourists line up to this day. I was there uh, a couple summers ago you know, in line there to go and, and, and view this little, this little vial of, of Jesus's blood, but that area of um, of Europe has has a really strong tie to the to the Knights Templar, and and you know we'll get into that as, as we as we continue our visit tonight. Mm-hmm. But one of the interesting clues about this Ghent altarpiece and and some of the mystery behind it, it ties into uh, the Duke of Burgundy who ruled that entire area right. of Europe uh, during that time period. So, well, I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves, but. But yeah, so just to sort of set this whole thing up. That when we're talking about this area of Europe, we're talking about a, an area that was had strong Templar influence and tr- strong Templar history to it. Okay, 
and you know we probably need to establish what the Ghent altarpiece is for the uh, listeners. So uh, okay, can, yeah, great. That's a great question. Yeah, let's, so, let's, so the the best way to describe the Ghent altarpiece, NPR, National Public Radio. Uh, refers to it as arguably the most important painting in history. Okay, what it is is it's this massive uh, an altarpiece is a piece of artwork, of course, that sits in front of an altar. It's 16 panels, and the reason it's so prominent, the reason it's so important, is uh, up until then there were color paintings, of course, but they weren't really all that vibrant. The Van Eyck brothers figured out a way to create this amazing vibrancy by mixing uh, pigments with linseed oil. And so they ended up with this bright colors that had never been seen before. And in addition, they were meticulous about drawing in detail, which no one had done before either, you, in such detail that, for example, you could see every individual hair on a horse. So really what this was, picture going from black and white television to color TV and high def, all in one fell swoop. That's what this painting was. We went from black and white immediately the high-def color, and people were just blown away by it. People came from all over Europe to see this painting. Uh, again, this is 1432 in, in something called St. Bavos Cathedral in, in, in Ghent in Belgium. And, um, and the history of that painting going forward, it then became the most uh, stolen piece of artwork in history. It's been stolen six different times. And, uh, you know, again, we talked about it uh, it was featured mm-hmm. in, in the Monuments Men movie, um, and one of the things about it that, that the reason that, that I ended up writing about it is the 16 panels, uh, one of those panels was stolen uh, before World War II in 1934, and that panel has never been recovered, and it's that panel called the Just Judges panel. That panel, Adolf Hitler believed, was a secret map leading to the Holy Grail and the lost treasure of the Knights Templar. And he was obsessed with finding it. It's to this day still has never been recovered. But the idea that that panel, one of the panels in this painting, might be a map to the Holy Grail, just is fascinating. <laughs> Himmler, Hitler's you know number one man, number one assistant, Himmler disagreed with Hitler. He said, no, no, it's not a map to the Holy Grail. It's actually a map that leads us back to ancient Atlantis, both of them believed that what they were going to find by following this map, whether it was the Arma Christi from the Holy Grail or the technology of Atlantis, would allow them, would allow the Nazis to win World War II. So crazy stuff going on, all, all with this painting, though. But again, it all starts because, because of the, the evolution in, in both the vibrancy of color and also the detail in which every little piece of the painting was completed. Okay, and uh, it seems that the central painting is the one with the uh, sacrificial lamb on the altar, and you get right. yeah uh, throngs of people. Arriving for the, the scene from all different angles uh, of the painting. 
Right. So the, cent- the centerpiece and the largest piece, uh, the largest panel in the painting, is something called the Adoration of Mystic Lamb. And like you said, it's got a lamb on an altar in the middle, and it's surrounded by all the important figures of the Old and New Testaments: the angels, the judges, the prophets. Um, the lamb is being sacrificed, and, and, and you can see the blood flowing out of the chest of the lamb into a chalice. So again, that's that's. The, the the lamb is a common symbol for for Jesus, and this is the, the obviously the, the the sacrifice of the lamb, the sacrifice of Jesus, and the blood flowing into the chalice is symbolic of the Holy Grail, and 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 this is this is pretty basic symbology in this painting. Everyone is there watching, um, off to one side watching this event, are a group of uh, knights on horseback. Uh, Knights of Christ, which are the successor order to the Knights Templar. And then beyond them are a group of contemporary figures, uh, noblemen of Europe, and they're called the Just Judges. They're also on horseback. It's these Just Judges. It's this panel is the one that was stolen in 1934 and never recovered that is supposedly the secret map to the Holy Grail and the treasure of the Templars. Um, but it's the, it's the Just Judges who are behind the Knights of Christ. Remember the, the Knights of Christ. That's quote unquote. Uh, not, not. I'm sorry. The Knights of Christ, the successors to the Templars, were quote unquote um, heretics. They had been outlawed in 1307. So one of the questions right away is why are why is this outlawed order? Uh, why are they featured so prominently and so close to the center of uh, religious painting that's been that's been displayed? In a Catholic cathedral, St. Pablo's Cathedral, so that that's one of the one of the things I think Hitler was wondering about as a potential clue. Now, of course, it's always dangerous to try to get inside the the mind of Adolf Hitler. But what was it about this painting and that panel in particular that made Hitler think it was it was a, a secret map? Partly, I think it was because of the inclusion of the Templars in the painting. So that was a potential clue he and others thought. Okay, and since we don't have the painting to study, uh, it's you know, been photographed, and you know, we'll get to that uh, sh- shortly. But you know, what was the kind of uh, uh, Atlantean technology that uh, – Hitler and then, you know uh, Himmler also you know discussed that you know could be represented uh, in this painting that would help them to uh, win the Second World War. All right. So Hitler thought that the the painting led to uh, what we'll call the Arma Christi, the the the. Uh, implements used in the um, crucifixion of Jesus. So specifically, the true cross, the spear of destiny, the crown of thorns. Hitler believed that those things could be weaponized because they were magical and also used by himself to give himself um, uh, the, the fountain of youth, permanent life, like make, to make himself immortal, that he could... That he could he, he like Jesus could be could have uh, uh, um, he, could, he could come back to life and and and, and become immortal. That 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 this, this Arma Christi he could find these things and again use them not only to win the war but also 
to continue the rule to rule the world the world indefinitely. Himmler, um, as part of the Aryan um, belief that the Aryans tied their history back to the uh, to the northern uh, Scandinavians and also going back even further to the what they believe was the ancient Atlantis civilization. Uh, he believed that the map led to uh, some kind of underground portal or, or hiding place or cave in which the technology of Atlantis could be found. And remember the stories of Atlantis, they were able to do things like levitation. They had amazing weaponry. They had, they had technology far beyond what other people had at that time period, whether we're talking 12, 15,000 years ago in that range. So both Himmler and Hitler were obsessed with this painting and the map they believed was embedded in it, but for sort of different reasons. But in the end, both of them thought that what they were going to find was could be weaponized and used by the Nazis to win World War II. Okay, and to take the uh, Atlantean theme uh, a little bit deeper, you know, you do work in the um, is it Dunvedenstone Circle that's also located in the Netherlands as you know maybe a uh, part of the Atlantean culture or maybe one of the outposts that you know, you, you bring up from uh, you know your previous book, uh, Echoes of Atlantis. You know, we can get it, save that for later. Sure. Um, but but you, you know you do bring up this uh, stone uh, stone circle that you. Uh, I assume you you visited that one. I'm sorry. You said I'm sorry. You're talking about the Hunabedden site in the Netherlands. Hunabedden. Yeah, oh, yeah, is that I, what you're saying? I, yeah. I, 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 I missed that day in uh, school on <laughs> the, the official Dutch pronunciation. <laughs> Hunebedden Hunebedden means giant beds. So that's the that's ah, the yeah, giant. So giant beds. Okay. So the Hunebedden, um there's a site in in um, the Netherlands. And yes, I did visit it. It was fascinating. Uh, it's actually about sixty different sites, sixty different Hunebedden sites, and they're clustered. Near the German border in northeast, the northeast part of the Netherlands, and what they are are these giant boulders that somehow came across uh, from Scandinavia. Either they floated across during the Ice Age, or they were dragged across uh, by ancient man. But they were they they're arranged oftentimes in circles. They're again these these are boulders the size of refrigerators, of sleeper sofas. The smaller ones are about the size of reclining chairs. They're massive, and they're stacked up oftentimes uh, two on the ground and one sort of atop it like a bridge, almost like an arch. And, and the reason they're called giant beds is the ancient people thought maybe they were built by giants as sleeping areas. Um, and, and, they're, and they're fascinating, but one, one of the possibilities that my characters talk about in the book is, you know, could these things be evidence of the ancient Atlantis civilization? Because... Again, these things were moved across you know, hundreds of miles, open sea. Um, you know, who could have done this? Who who would have had the technology to do this? And then 
also the strength. And so when we talk about, of course, ancient Atlantis, one of the things that we read about is that these were oversized people. I don't, I don't use the word giants, but they were they were big, strong, you know, much bigger people than other peoples of that time period. And and so when we start talking about these massive formations and, and giants' beds, you know, I guess we do have to talk about giants a little bit. So the 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 mm-hmm. ancient peoples believed these these formations, actually these arrangements, they're not formations, they're man-made, believed these things may have been tied back to the ancient Atlantis culture. Okay. It, it does make sense, you know, the positioning of them, you know, or like on the uh, what, eastern edge of the the North Sea, you know, g- general, it's uh, yeah. s- somewhere in that vicinity, and you, you do uh, and mention the um, outposts all, all along the uh, you know, both sides of the Atlantic uh, seashore uh, in the echoes of Atlantis and. When Greg Little was on talking about it at Atlantis with Barbara a couple months ago, you know, he was also discussing like Bimini, you know, could, could be like one of these outposts too. So, you know, that yeah, you know, we uh, that does sound like a possibility. Right. So when you talk about Atlantis, you know, everyone agrees. Not everyone agrees where it is, but. Everyone does agree that it was an island in the middle of the ocean someplace, whether mm-hmm. some people think inside the Mediterranean. I think it was along the uh, – in the mid-Atlantic um, ridge um, in the middle of the Atlantic. And, and, and when it when – it, wherever it was, everyone agrees it was a seafaring uh, society. And so they would have had outposts clustered around um, you know, including areas of the North Sea, which is where, what we're talking about here. So yeah, so the pieces sort of hold together, and, and even if even if Atlantis mm-hmm. itself was destroyed by some cataclysmic event, as as Plato tells us, there would have likely have been uh, a few at least members of this of their society or ships with crews that were out in trading missions or somehow able to survive the cataclysmic event, and then they would have had to find uh, a new place to settle, presumably along the coastline someplace, and so we see these evidence of of some of the technology and some of the cultural things that we think may have gone on in Atlantis uh, in places like the Orkney Islands of the, uh, of the north of mm-hmm. Scotland. Um, we have some of these red paint burial sites along the uh, maritime Canada down into the Gulf of Mexico and then across into the Iberian Peninsula area. Um, the, the Iberian Peninsula has some fascinating cave art and other cultural uh, discoveries that seem to predate uh, what, we, we, what we now believe is the existing timeline of cultural discoveries, things like uh, ceramics that were fired in a kiln going back over 20,000 years, which you know, we, we always thought that the, that the Chinese discovered uh, the art of ceramics 10,000 years ago, but this looks like it's 20,000 years ago. And, and the cave art in the Pyrenees area of, of, um, between France and Spain some of that cave art goes back 25,000 years, you know, long before mm-hmm. people should have been able to do uh, things like that to have established the ability to, to have sophisticated pieces of artwork. 
And so anyway, we, we see these clusters of, of um, discoveries that don't fit in the existing uh, timeline. They're outliers. And one of the possibilities is that we can explain these outliers through the, uh, through the vehicle of, of an ancient civilization such as Atlantis, that Atlantis, the existence of Atlantis may explain why we have these outlying uh, discoveries that don't seem to fit in with what, mm-hmm. what we know about in Europe at the time, yet there they are. So uh, as no. you said, Mark, the, the idea that these, these rock formations, these rock arrangements would exist near the northern coast of Europe along the, the waterways, that makes sense. That's exactly where you expect to find stuff like that. Yeah. No, it, it, you know, it's, it, it just it, it, establishing some of the early themes you uh, wrote about, and you know, so so let's uh, take a moment to uh, shift from the European setting to the uh, Catskills for. for a minute and establish the uh, setting there, and you know, all, you know what what creates a lot of the international intrigue in your novel. Right. So you know, this is a common theme in in all my novels. This idea that when the Templars were outlawed, and even before the Templars were outlawed. At some point, the Templars probably figured out that they were they were going to butt heads with the church and were going to be outlawed, and that the church would someday turn on them. So even before they were outlawed, uh, and definitely afterwards, the Templars understood that they needed a safe haven. They needed a place to go to escape the long arm of the church. That that what 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 they believed, and I think they believed this. The, I think their beliefs were formed by their years in the Middle East where they were exposed to different ideas, uh, different uh, events uh, that, that made them start to question the orthodoxy of the church back in Europe. I think they, they, they learned different things while in the Middle East, and that's in the end why they butted heads with the church. But they understood that because they were butting heads with the church, uh, because they, their beliefs were not orthodox, because they may not have shared with the, in, the, in the patriarchal uh, rigidity of the medieval church, that eventually they were going to need a safe haven, uh, need a place to go to um, to hide their their treasures and themselves. Uh, and so I think early on they started looking across the Atlantic, and that we have some fascinating uh, journals that talk about uh, an excursion by Knights Templar members to the Catskill Mountains region of New York in the late uh, 1100s. And then later, uh, I've written about um, the Prince Henry Sinclair journey in 1398-1399, again, coming across from Scotland to the New England coastline. And and I'm guessing there are, you know, those are two that we we think we know about. I'm guessing there are many others in between that we don't know about. This was a secret society, and they were operating in secret on purpose because they were trying to hide themselves and their and their treasures from the church. And so obviously a lot of this is, is, is not in the historical record. But 
when you mentioned the Catskills, in my book, one of the things uh, the characters are, are suspicious of or wondering about is did the Templar treasure end up in America when this group of Templars came to the Catskills in the 1180s, in that time period, 1179, 1180, in that time period? You know, is that one of the things that they were doing? Were they bringing across some of their secrets, some of their treasures? Were they scouting for locations, and then later they brought them across? Um, you know, you don't, you don't – back then you didn't just make the, the, the cross-Atlantic uh, journey uh, just for, you know, just for just for a vacation, right? <laughs> it wasn't a weekend trip. It was obviously uh, a, a, a huge undertaking, and you would only do something like that if you had a really important mission to accomplish. Okay, and returning as the heroes of Treasure Templari are Cam and Amanda Thorne, and you know all, all these uh, archaeological sites or uh, what and. Uh, Engross them and trap them in these international uh, intrigues. So, uh, you know, for the, you know the listeners who uh, may not have read your ten previous books <laughs> that include uh, came in a man. Can 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 you uh, tell us a little bit about the, the he, heroes of? Sure. Uh, your 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 uh, uh, Templars in America series, right? So Cam and Amanda. Um, Cam is a um, he's now a forty something, but he when I first started writing, he was thirty something. He's an attorney in in Greater Boston, who um, sort of stumbles lives in the town of Westford, northwest of Massachusetts. Uh, at the very beginning of the series, he stumbles upon this Westford knight, spelled with a K. Legend, and that's the legend of, of the Prince Henry Sinclair journey to North America that I just mentioned in 1398, 1399. Uh, he, he he quickly becomes associated with Amanda. Uh, her, she is a is a British um, uh, uh, historian uh, who ends up in America uh, in the Westford area, and she is sort of there to to, to act as custodian of the Westford night legend for. A, for a group of Europeans who feel that it's worth preserving. And anyway, one thing leads to another, and, and they end up becoming eventually romantically involved. Um, but essentially she brings the, the British perspective, the European perspective, on this whole uh, history. And he sort of, he, he and she together drive around New England looking at these different historical sites and artifacts and try to figure out um, you know, what was really going on while, of course, uh, as because these are fiction and it's sort of the formula, you need to have bad guys trying to stop them from finding out what's going on. Very similar to the formula in National Treasure or the Da Vinci Code. It's that, that kind, those kinds of books. But the idea is that the the, the the readers learn about this history and experience the history at the same time they're on a bit of roller coaster ride uh, in in this fictional setting with Cameron and Amanda. Um, so in this particular book, the 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 missing panel in the Ghent altarpiece, the one that we think is the map to the Holy Grail and the Templar treasure, it is discovered. And, and, and the person who discover it, discovers it uh, enlists Cam and Amanda to help him understand and translate it, knowing that Cam and Amanda are experts now 
on the Knights Templar, and that the Templars seem to have be very much related and involved in this mystery. This 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 art, uh, this person in the art um, world knows a lot about art, but does not necessarily know a lot about history and the history of the Templars. So again, he enlists Cameron and Amanda's aid to translate the painting. In the meantime, other groups are trying to get hold of the painting because once it becomes known that it exists, now everyone wants to follow the trail and discover the treasure, whether it's the Holy Grail, the Templar treasure. What is the Templar treasure? Is it gold and silver? Is it uh, religious artifacts such as the Ark of the Covenant? Uh, is it the Holy Grail itself? Again, like we talked about, the the, the, the Spear of Destiny, the True Cross, the, the, the Crown of Thorns. Is it something else having to do with early Christianity? Uh, is it secret knowledge? I mean, all sorts of possibilities what the Templar treasure might be. But everybody, of course, wants it. In addition to the fact that people want the painting itself, because it's probably worth in the neighborhood of four or five hundred million dollars. Uh, it's a very famous painting, and it's been missing since 1934. So there's lots of people circling around trying to get hold of this painting, both for monetary reasons and for political reasons. And of course, that that leads to uh, that that sort of sort of the, the ingredients that we put together to make our our tasty, savory murder mystery meal uh, in in this story. But at the center of it, as they always seem to be, are Cameron and Amanda. Okay, and um, is it Shelby who says to Cam, I've seen you on the History Channel? Uh, so it, is that uh, – is Cam a little bit of an autobiographical character? <laughs> I always like so. So I, I am a, um, a lawyer by training, as, as is Cam. I like to tell people that Cam is a – a, a better-looking, more intelligent, uh, you know, more athletic uh, version of myself, and um, you know, all, all the things I always wanted to be, you know, <laughs> taller and thinner and, and a full head of hair, that kind of stuff. But um, in some ways, um, he is. But in many ways, he's not. I mean, there's a lot. Of, Cameron, for example, because I didn't want to make him too perfect, happens to be diabetic, and so everyone always assumes I must be diabetic, which I'm not. Um, so there's a lot of things about Cameron that, that are, are not autobiographical, but the basic idea of this uh, attorney uh, in greater Boston stumbling upon this mystery it is very similar to the way it happened to me. Uh, I live uh, – at the time when I started this, I lived in Western Massachusetts, and my daughter, who happened to be in fourth grade at the time, came home from school one day and said, we just learned about this people exploring America before Columbus, and I thought it was just a really neat story from my hometown, but I'd never heard about it before. And so I walked up the hill in the, in the center of our town and went to the library and started doing some research on it. And, and I, so I went down that rabbit hole back, it's probably been uh, 13, 14 years ago, you know, and I'm still um, ferreting around down in these dusty corners of history. It's been you know, nine, ten books later, uh, and I'm, again, I'm still down there writing about it, researching it, in desperate need of a change of clothes <laughs> and a shower, you know, having been down there for so long. But but I remain fascinated by this, much the same way Cameron is. You know, he, essentially what, what, what he is discovering is the same kind of things that, that I'm discovering, which is this whole possibility that there 
were waves of explorers coming to America before Columbus. And when you sort of step back and think about it, um, you know, we know that the Norse came over, Leif Erikson, in the early years of the 11th century, 1001 to 1012 or 14, somewhere in that range, came back three or four different times. So we know they came across back then. We know they had the boats could do it. They did it. So, so like, why are people surprised that somewhere in that 500-year gap between Leif Erikson and Christopher Columbus that other people would have done the same thing? You know, it's part of the human condition. that We all watched Star Trek when we were kids to, to seek out new life and new civilization, to boldly go where no one has gone before. Well, in this particular case, people had gone there before. So other people had maps. They had the Icelandic sagas. They had books written about the wonderful things that could be found across the Atlantic Ocean, whether it was, you know, a land of plenty, whether it was uh, trading with the natives for, for, for fur, fishing, harvesting timber, there were some really compelling reasons to make the crossing. So there was good reasons to do it. They had motivation. They knew how to do it. Again, to me, it would have been surprising if nobody had done it, a lot more surprising than that people did. And the people who did do it probably kept it secret. It was, there were economic advantages to keeping it secret, like somebody has your own, you know, your favorite fishing hole, you don't tell people about it. There are plenty of good reasons to keep this kind of thing quiet. Uh, and again, we're dealing with secret societies. And in the case of the Templars, not only were there economic reasons for keeping things quiet, but again, they were trying to, trying to get away from the long arm of the church. They had both uh, economic reasons, because they wanted to keep their treasures away from the church. You know, we know that in 1307, when the, when the church came in and outlawed the Templars and raided their treasury in Paris, that they found an empty treasury. So that the Templars had somehow spirited away their treasures before the, the, the church and, and the king of France could, could get there and, and take it. So where did it all go? We still don't know the answer to that. You know, one of the possibilities is America. Um, but also they needed a safe haven because, again, they, they figured at some point the church would turn on them, much as the church had done to the Cathars in the Provence region of France in something called the Albigensian Crusade in 1220 or so. You know, this, is a, this, was, this, was, this was not the first time the church turned on other Christians, for being the wrong kinds of Christians, for being bad Christians, and, and wiped them out. They wiped out hundreds of thousands of Cathars in the Albigensian Crusade. Templars are fully aware of that, and they said to themselves, probably, look, we can't let that happen to us. At some point, the church is going to turn on us. We need to have an escape plan. We need to have a place to get to. We need to have a safe haven. So, um, so anyway, that's a very long answer to your question, but this is the kind of stuff that Cam and Amanda are learning about, the ways of explorers, not just Templars, but other explorers who we think came across the Atlantic. Um, and, and, and I'm learning about it at the same time. So in that sense, it is autobiographical because um, it's something that I had never known about. I was never taught, and I find it incredibly eye-opening, and, and, and it's become my passion. My, my, um, you know, my, my family, they laugh at me. They Whenever we go on vacation, all I want to do is go look at sites and artifacts uh, like the Hunabed, like the, the, the giant bed, that I think evidence ancient civilizations and what these civilizations might have done and where they might have gone. Okay, and 
the bad guys in uh, Treasure Templari are uh, I get to, you know, to some of the uh, neo Nazis and you know they are trying to basically complete Hitler and Himmler's vision. So, right, you know, they're uh, you know also you know, seeking more information and you know, get all the you know Cam and Amanda get kidnapped and all that. Uh, kind of stuff goes on. Uh, do you, uh, do you want to comment about yeah you know, the bad guys or that just well, the, not, the, not um, pretty self-explanatory? Yeah, so I, I think it's important, and and you know we we all we all learn about World War II history. We learn about the Holocaust. We learn about Hitler and the Nazis, and we learn about, of course Pearl Harbor. I don't think people realize um, how close it was. To losing that for the Allies to lose that war, I don't think people realize how uh, how close we were. There's a fascinating uh, TV series, um, uh, Man in the High Castle. Do you watch that, Mark? Are you familiar with that? Uh, not, no, I, I haven't seen that one. Okay, it's Man in the High. Basically, what it is is it's based on a book. Um, it's basically um, an entire series based on the possibility. It's modern day, but it's it's al- it's an alternative. Uh, existence based on the fact that the Germans and the, and the Japanese had won World War II. So the United States is occupied uh, to the east of the Rockies by Germany, Nazi Germany, and to the west of the Rockies by Japan. And, and it's set during modern days, but under the rule of the Japanese and the Germans on continental, in continental America. People don't realize how close things were to the, to the Axis powers winning World War II. Um, some, in fact, some commentators believe, had Hitler not been so obsessed with eliminating the Jews and other undesirables, quote unquote, had he not wasted so many resources on that, had he just focused on on the war effort, he would have won the war. For example, he was convinced that uh, research into nuclear uh the nuclear bomb he considered that to be uh that particular field of science to be beneath the nazis because it was a jewish field of science and he wanted nothing to do with it and had he not taken that um stance it probably would have been the germans who came up with the nuclear bomb first and of course who knows what would have happened if it had fallen into their hands so they were they were so obsessed with finding this this technology from atlantis and the magical technology of 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 uh, the Arma Christi, but they had the nuclear bomb pretty much at their fingertips. They, the people who ended up, you know, working the nuclear bomb, uh, the Manhattan Project in America, many of them w- w- had been spirited out of Europe, in particular Germany, at the beginning of the war. And so he had those people uh, within his borders. And 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 had he given uh, more resources and more attention to it, the Nazis probably would have had the bomb before we did. So anyway, so this particular group of, of the villains in my book are, are again, they're, they're neo-Nazis, but they, they want to complete the mission 
that Hitler and Himmler began, um, but they want to be a little smarter about it. They're, they're not necessarily um, – they're just they're trying to be a little more savvy. Basically, they want, they want a second chance at it. And so there's a, there's a technology that I won't get into because I don't want to ruin the story, but there's a technology out there. And again, they think that this, this map, the secret map, leads to this technology. And, and so their intent is to find the technology to uh, allow them to finish what Hitler had begun. And so they're, they're one of the villains in the story. Okay. It, it, uh, yeah, because I, I, I don't want to yeah, give away how um, – yeah, you know, too too much more of the uh, book, but it, yeah, you know, I think the audience m- might find it interesting to l- look at uh, just yeah, you know, you know, maybe you would just wet their whistle a little bit about uh, the reproduction uh, 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 of. The lost painting uh, that was based on like, a, a photograph of it, and you know, like, there's the different spire. Uh, is that giving away too much, or yeah, that's, that's probably that's that probably giving away too much. And so, but basically, okay. what, what is the characters? The characters, you know, this, this is this is similar to you know Da Vinci Code, where you know the characters look at the they study the painting for clues, and mm-hmm. so. You know, so our, our art experts in this book they, they study the painting. Um, there, there's a photograph of the lost panel that was done in the early 1900s, and and so people work from that a little bit. It's black and white, so it's not exact. Um, but again, in, in, in my book, of course, they, they find the original, so they, they're comparing the original to the photograph to see if any there's any alterations one to the other, as if that might be a clue. So, but yeah, I don't think we need to get into that so much. I think what, okay. I, what I would like to talk about, and to better answer your okay. previous question, Mark, about the villains, one of the fascinating things, and one of the things I had a lot of fun exploring about this particular group of villains, these neo-Nazis, is is they, they want to, uh, the, the Fourth Reich that they want to create, they believe that Christianity is too weak a religion to be a true Nazi religion, and so, uh, and I didn't realize this. I didn't realize that um, Himmler, especially, was was very anti-Christian. In fact, he encouraged his SS officers to follow the old gods. And so, there's some interesting uh, historical photographs of, for example, when when an SS officer got married, they would dance around the Maypole, just like the old pagan celebrations. This whole mm-hmm. Christianity idea of Turn the other cheek and love thy neighbor. The Nazis are like, no, 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 no. We want, we want the old Thor, the hammer of Thor. We want the old gods. We want to, we want to mm-hmm. take no prisoners. We don't like this, this, you know, this Jesus, uh, love thy neighbor stuff and turn the other cheek stuff. And so they thought Christianity was too weak a religion to be a, to, 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 you know, to be worthy of the Nazi uh, elite. And so Himmler, even back in the 1930s and 40s, was pushing for a return to the old gods. And so that's an interesting aspect. So one of the things that the, 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 the villains in this story do is they try to build a case 
against Christianity. And I think, Mark, some of the things you want to talk about, I don't know if you want to do it now, but things like the book Caesar's Messiah and, and things like mm-hmm. uh, the, an analysis of, of the Gospel of Mark and, and those kinds of things, the, the villains in my story try to undermine Christianity uh, a bit as, as a way to uh, blaze a path so that when they do take over, when Nazism does take over again, that, that along with it is the removal of Christianity as a world religion to be re- replaced by one of these old religions that uh, emphasize the sort of power and strength and, 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 and uh, not this soft side the soft, wimpy side of Christianity, where you turn the other cheek. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we'll come back to uh, Caesar's Messiah in, in, in a little bit, but you, you know, you do uh, work in the uh, Norse uh, poems and legends uh, from Thule and you know the Magic Land and all. All the stuff that fit, fit into the Nazi uh, philosophy uh, right. of the time. And so, yeah, you have that developed throughout. Uh, you know, you know the book with uh, you know the character uh, Katrina, and yeah, named after the figure skater Katarina Witt, the German, the East German figure skater. Remember her. Katarina Witt, uh, yes. Yeah. So the and so she she was uh she was this this, this character uh, this neo Nazi character Katarina is named after of course the German figure skater Katarina Witt. Okay. <laughs> and yeah, you know, go, go, going you know, shifting back from the uh. uh you know, legends of yore to you know, uh, uh, you know, the Duke of Burgundy that you brought up at the beginning. Yeah, you know, there, you know, he uh, features in the painting as well as some some of the uh, Cathedral of uh, you know the whole or the Holy Blood Basilica and Saint Bavos. And you know, there, there's uh, other artwork in there to contrast with the uh, Norse legends. But um, you know, you have uh, photos of the black and white checker uh, 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 floor and and the uh, duality uh, theme that. Uh, uh, you know, is uh, a, a mainstay of the uh, Templar philosophy. So, so, so what was the Duke of Burgundy's role in the fourteen twenties? You know, we know that he was friends with Jan van Eyck as. Uh, right. So, so, the, so yeah, the first of all, I, I kept reading. I kept reading about the Duke of Burgundy, and, and and it took me three or four times before I finally said, "This guy's just a duke. Like, how how important could he be?" And then I realized I had did some research, and he was actually the king. I don't know why he's called the Duke of Burgundy, but back then he was he was the king of a huge swath of land in the middle of Europe, basically what we now know today as Belgium, the Netherlands, and most of France. 
So I keep reading about this guy who's a Duke, and I think, all right, he's a Duke. You know, how important could he be? It turns out he was actually the king. So, so right away, I'm like, all right, I got to pay more attention to this guy. So he ruled. He he lived in uh, 1396. I think he was born, and he ruled all the way through the early and mid 1400s. What's What's important about him is, like you mentioned, he was uh, good friends with Jan Van Eyck. In fact, he was uh, the patron of Van Eyck, and he's the one who sort of commissioned this. Uh, Ghent altarpiece painting. He was Van Eyck's son's godfather. But what's important about this Duke of Burgundy is he was obsessed with the Holy Grail himself. He was a big student of alchemy and esoterica, part of the, all the mystery schools. Basically, when you think about the Templars and the Freemasons and the Rosicrucians, and this guy was right up that alley. He was. He would have been front and center at all these events, all these meetings, all these people in the medieval times and, and going forward up until today, all these, these, these men mostly, but people who were fascinated by the ancient mystery schools and wanted to learn about alchemy and the Holy Grail, this, that's him, okay? In fact, he started his own order called the Order of the Golden Fleece. This was in the early mm-hmm. 1400s. And, um, right. you know, a lot of the, a lot of the, members of the outlawed, uh, a lot of the outlawed Templar families, a lot of those members became part of this group, okay? And so we see in the Basilica, in the um, uh, St. Bavos Cathedral, where the Ghent altarpiece is, lots of different clues uh, as to the origins, the Templar origins of, of that cathedral. The, the, the ground floor, the basin was, was actually a Templar uh, chapel before it became the cathedral, and then even in the artwork and in um, a lot of the decoration and stuff, it's, it's a lot of Templar clues in that cathedral. And again, during this time period, the Templars have been outlawed. So the idea that we would have Templar iconography and symbology in a Christian church is a little bit surprising and contradictory. And it tells us that this guy, the Duke of Burgundy, who was essentially the one who commissioned this church to be built and, and decorated the way it was, he, even though was even though he was a, a quote-unquote good Christian, he believed in a lot of the things that the Templars believed in, and he was fascinated by a lot of the things the Templars were fascinated in. In particular, I think, this whole idea of the Holy Grail and alchemy and, and um, you know, the, the Templar treasure. So that that seems to be the the theme that carries through this. And I think he's the one who requested that Van Eyck embed these Templar secrets and these Holy Grail secrets in the painting. Again, he was the patron of Van Eyck at the time Van Eyck was painting this stuff. So he's a key part of this whole story. Yeah, it, 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 yeah maybe uh, now we uh, might be able to work in that we're, with, with the um, you know, duality theme, uh, you know, you, also, you also get into uh, the separation of uh, church and state. You get the uh, oh, um, yeah, that's an important theme. Yeah, Caesar's messiah. Yeah, you know, the yeah. Caesar's Messiah that you mentioned uh, earlier about uh, 
you know, the one passage from uh, was it like Romans thirteen that is like uh, you know, just uh, just be a, a obedient to what the <laughs> government tells you. Yeah, yeah. All right, so so let's start with let's start with the whole duality thing because um, okay. when when and then we'll get to Caesar's Messiah at the end of that. I think we'll circle back to it, but. One of the things I spent a long time on in, in this book is looking at the again we're, we're trying to find clues as to what the Templars really believed. That, that to me that, that that carries through all of my books. What did the Templars find when they were in Jerusalem? How did it affect their beliefs and 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 and, and their religious beliefs? And eventually, those things caused them to be considered heretics by the church but what was it that they believed what did they find what were those beliefs and then of course what happened to their treasure but let's stop with their beliefs whatever it was that they believed was contrary to the church church teachings i think what it was it all goes back to something called dualism or duality you know what that really is is balance the idea that society needs balance uh in order to be healthy that it has to have a balance between masculine and feminine, between church and state, um, between, uh, you know, just nature demands, you know, hot and cold, light and dark. Um, you know, we see this all the way through, and you see this a lot in, in Freemasonry and in, in, in their ritual, the black and white checkered floor. And anyway, this is a common concept in many uh, yin and yang in, in Asian religions, for example. The church didn't necessarily abide by that. The church would say, we don't need masculine and feminine. We just have, we need masculine. We don't need church and state. We just need church. Okay, so there was an imbalance there that the church was perfectly fine with. We don't need science. We just need faith, right? We don't need to. We're not going to heal people through medicine. We're going to heal them through prayer. Okay, and the, and the Templars saying, well, wait a second, faith is important, but so is medicine and science. You know, and and so you need balance. The the, the we need the feminine influence to help make our, ourselves a healthy society, the church is like, no, we don't. And so, so the Templars, I think, were looking for, again, dualism or balance. And so I started looking at their secret seals, the things that they used uh, in their secret correspondence. Um, and then, of course, these seals had images. And these images start to tell, uh, I think, uh, give us an insight as to what the Templars really believed. And the first one I looked at was the one that many of your listeners probably are familiar with, and that is the common Templar seal or symbol of two knights on one horse. And, and, and we're taught or we're told that this was uh, the symbol of the, of, the, of the poor fellow soldiers of Christ, which is what the Templars really called themselves, because they were poor. It was a poor order, and therefore we couldn't afford enough horses. We only had... We had to share our horses because we were so poor. We were servants of God. Well, the reality is nothing could be further from the truth. The Templars were wealthier than most monarchs. In fact, they were the bankers to most uh, sovereigns in Europe. They, they lent money to kings. They were the, first, the world's first bankers, the first world's first multinational corporation. They owned hundreds of commanderies. They had literally the expression, more money than God, is, is attributed to, to them. They were incredibly wealthy. They were anything but poor. And in fact, Rule 51 of the order specifically says, quote, to each knight brother, we grant three horses and one squire. So every knight had three horses and a squire. There was no reason two knights had to share one horse. 
Each knight had three of his own. So you get this whole idea that they were sharing a, a, a horse you know, never made sense to me from a historical perspective because I know how wealthy they were. So what's this whole idea with two knights on one horse? Well, I think what's really going on there is if you look at it from a more uh, allegorical perspective, getting back to this whole idea of balance and the importance uh, in nature of equal and opposite and harmony is that the two men on one horse represent the opposite seemingly contradictory missions of the order. On the one hand, they were religious monks, but on the other hand, they were fierce warriors. And yet these two things, even though they were opposites, were in balance with each other. There were two men, the monk and the fighter, balanced together on one horse. And I think that's what was going on with that symbol. It wasn't about we're too poor to afford a second horse. It was that these two... uh, each side of the same coin, the, the warrior and the praying monk could exist together in balance on this one horse and still have a healthy order, and that that's really what society needs. Society needs the balance and the dualism, not just one or the other. And so based on that, I started looking at other Templar seals, and I started wondering whether other seals might also be related to this concept of dualism. And the second seal I found, this is the one that to me is the most compelling of all, uh, features the pagan god Abraxas, A-B-R-A-X-A-S. And if your listeners want to Google that quickly, you'll see that what pops up is this fascinating image of this pagan deity which has the head of a rooster, the body of a man, and the legs of serpents, two serpents as legs, and the, and, and the deity is holding a whip in one hand and, and either a shield or a sun in the other. And Abraxas, the, the, by the way, the name Abraxas, the pagan deity worshipped most notably by the, the Cathars uh, of southern France. I mentioned earlier the Albigensian Crusade where hundreds of thousands of the wrong kinds of Christians were wiped out. Well, that's who these people are. These are the wrong kinds of Christians because even though they were Christians, they also believed in this Abraxas God. They believed Abraxas created God, Yahweh, like, you know, God created the heavens and the earth. But who created God? Well, they believed this this deity called Abraxas created God. And they believed that Abraxas was uh, symbolic of the natural world. The, the name Abraxas is formed using the first letter of the Greek name of each of the seven classical planets, the planets visible to the naked eye, the sun, the moon, Mars, Venus, Jupiter, Saturn, and Mercury. Okay, so that's where the name Abraxas comes from. But it's a natural world. It's the pagan god. It's not Yahweh. It's, it's nature. Okay, And again, the Cathars were eventually wiped out by the church for these beliefs, but their god, the god above, above god, Abraxas, the pagan deity, this deity, for some reason, is featured by the Templars on their secret seal. Remember, the Templars are supposed to be an army of the church, Christians, and yet they have a pagan deity on their secret seal. Remember the old I Love Lucy show? And Ricky said to Lucy, Lucy... You got some splaining to do, right? That's 
That's what's going on when mm-hmm. I saw that. So I said, all right, someone's got some explaining to do. Why is there a pagan deity on the secret seal of this Christian order? And I think the answer is because they understood the importance of the natural world, the balance, uh, the dualism of of this deity of Abraxas, the, the dualism that's rec- represented by, for example, the serpents, which we consider to be evil in Christianity. No, the serpent is a symbol of wisdom in in the ancient pagan religions. And so the Templars, knowing that, secretly use this symbol. So there's other symbols as well, but the idea is that all the symbols I found, all the seals that I found, all reflect this concept of dualism and balance. And this, I think, is what the Templars believed and this, I think, is what got them in trouble with the church. Okay. And going back... This, you're supposed to clap at the end of that. You're supposed to say, bravo, Mark. Uh, bravo, uh, Brody. Well done. You figured it out. Thank you. <laughs> Come on. Where's my round uh, it, of applause? It was great. And you know, I... <laughs> Did have one of my friends saying uh, how much she uh, is really getting out of your uh, lecture. So, but uh, but you know, j- j- you know, just to take your um, you know doctoral thesis back, you know, what twelve thirteen hundred years to. Uh, um, you know, like the first century A.D., when it, there there really wasn't a, a balance. You know, uh, when when the um, uh, uh, you know, gospels were being written. You know, you do introduce that. Uh, uh, Caesar's Messiah book, right. and yeah, that's you're kind of building up to this uh, balance from the Abraxas uh, concept to it. It got lo- lost with the uh, passage from Romans about you know just be a slave to the uh, you know, government masters. So, well, so yes, uh, what's happening it's, it's, it's there? Almost, almost, it's almost like. Two separate things. So the Caesar Messiah stuff, that in, in my in in my take on that, in in, in my Treasure Templari novel, I use that more. That's, that's more uh, something that the the, the villains, the, the neo Nazis, are using as a way to sort of undermine Christianity. They come across this book. It's a, a book called Caesar's Messiah by Joseph Atwill, and Atwill makes a really mm-hmm. compelling argument that Jesus was not a real historical figure that instead he was invented by the Roman imperial family, the Flavians, uh, because at the time there was sort of a popular prophecy that the Savior was coming. The Jews of that time, for various reasons, believed that the Savior was coming. They were ready to rebel against Rome. They were waiting for a, messian- a messianic leader behind whom they could rally. So what the, the Flavians did, the, the ro- royal imperial family did, is they gave them what they wanted. They gave them Jesus, and, and Atwell argues it was a fictional person. There really was no real Jesus, but that they gave him this 
prophet, but they made him, they watered him down, they made him sort of passive because they wanted the Jews at the time to have, to, to follow a passive leader. They almost sort of, almost like they, they, they created an uprising and then they neutered it by themselves. And the evidence Atwell uses talks about how um, even though the religion was supposedly founded by a Jew, that a lot of its, 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 its structure, the sacraments, its college of bishop, the word pontiff, they're all based on Roman, not Jewish traditions. And in fact, the only writing that we have of Jesus, only writer at the time, the contemporary writer who actually mentions Jesus is Josephus, who was adopted by the royal imperial family, the Flavians. So the only source that actually talks about Jesus was actually the adopted son of the emperor, who's trying to undermine, according to Atwell, the idea, uh, trying to undermine the Jewish uprising. He also talks about, in, uh, in Romans uh, 13, 2-6, I think it is, that how, how, how the, the Roman judges and magistrates were actually good people, that it's the, it's, it's the citizens who were wrong for opposing their oppressors. He gives a whole long quote about, really, the, uh, if you're going to be a good citizen, you should obey the taxpayer. You should obey your overlord. You should obey your occupier. It's quite an interesting concept for a freedom fighter to be arguing to his followers you should, that you should know you should obey the occupying force, obey the Roman taxpayers, obey the Roman uh, occupiers. It's a strange thing. You don't usually see that in revolutions. And yet these writings supposedly, as is by the Apostle Paul, uh, these writings that, that Atwell talks about, um, seem to undermine the cause of a revolution. And so uh, in my story, the, the neo-Nazis sort of use this book. They, they, they want to use this book as a way to teach their followers going forward that really Jesus was just uh, fictional, that he was, he was fabricated by the Roman royal family as a way to undermine the Jewish uprising. Um, so it's, it's an interesting concept. And, you know, I'm not sure, I'm not an expert in, in Bible studies to be able to tell, tell you how accurate this was, but it's a fascinating argument. And uh, at least in my, in my book, some of my characters... I think it carries a lot of weight. Yeah, in Scott's uh, Scott Walters' uh, Akhenaten to the Founding Fathers, he 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 brings up the Taupia tomb, and it, 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 yeah, there's some evidence in there that you know, there's like some. You know, Someone really special was uh, buried there, and, and you know, it sounds like it uh, could be G- Jesus and Mary Magdalene. Right. Uh, and the, but it, it, it seems like when the Crusaders or t- you know, t- Templars, you know, Came out of the uh, ho- Holy Land, they knew something that um, seems to maybe contradict the concept that 
uh, is in Caesar's Messiah that Jesus is just a a made-up person. But we don't know exactly what the Templars saw or the hidden treasures that they have. So – but – yeah, it, it it just seems like the Templars are more certain of something than previous generations and what we know today. Right. So, so one of the possibilities, and Scott talks about this, Scott Walter talks about this a lot in the Talpia tomb, is that uh, there's some evidence that that in the tomb was, you know, Jesus and and Mary Magdalene and their children and the and the extended family, and that obviously if Jesus was in a tomb, then he wasn't resurrected and if if he wasn't resurrected then that would be quite a thing for the templars to sort of leave jerusalem with you know that 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 evidence or that understanding you know that would bring them back to to europe and obviously have a conversation with the pope at the time saying hey you know the stuff that you're teaching you know isn't isn't completely right we we have evidence that jesus wasn't resurrected that we we found his bones or whatever it is and that actually ties into Something else that my villains in my book talk about, uh, again, when they're trying to undermine Christianity, uh, and that is the, the Gospel of Mark. The, there, there are two versions of the Gospel of Mark. There's what's called the short version, in which um, the, Mary Magdalene and the Virgin Mary and, and the other Mary go into the tomb after Jesus has died, and while in there... They encounter a young man dressed in white who announces that Jesus is resurrected, and the women flee the tomb and then don't say anything to anybody. And, 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 and that's where the earliest versions of the Gospel of Mark that date back to the 4th century, they sort of end right there. Okay, that's, that's the story. Uh, and that's called the short ending of Mark. But the King James Version and most other versions of the Bible have an additional 12-verse passage where this has been added on to sometime after the 4th century. And in that, in, in this addition, this addi- these additional passages called the long version of Mark, they go into much more detail about how Jesus actually appeared to the apostles himself and announced his resurrection. I've been resurrected, he said. Well, that causes a lot of Bible scholars and skeptics to say, well, hold on one second. The original version of Mark says nothing about a resurrection or the, nothing about Jesus saying he was resurrected. There is the mention of, of the man in the white uh, robe saying uh, there was a resurrection, but it's it's the long version of Mark that goes into a lot more detail, and that causes many Bible skeptics to say, if we take the short version of Mark at its word, there's really not a lot of evidence of the resurrection, and that's where if and that's where if if the Templars did find the bones of Jesus in Talpia tomb, you can sort of tie those two things together: the short version of Mark and then the bones. And the, Tal- and the Templars could have come out of there saying, you know what, we don't think he was really resurrected, which is fine. He still was a prophet. He still could have been the son of God. He could, still could have had all these other great qualities and all these great teachings. And just because he wasn't re- resurrected, we can still be Christians and have Christianity. Of course, the church wasn't necessarily going to go for that. And so that might have been the, the, the problem between and, and the butting heads between the church and the Templars, this whole idea of was he resurrected or not. But that all comes from your comment about what they may or may not have found in Talpia tomb and how that ties into both the short and long versions of the Gospels of Mark. 
it, it, it it's just all very interesting and you know I think well, one of the uh, 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 yeah uh, uh, it really wasn't planned uh ha- having you on on this week and get Gary Wayne is ne- next week uh but it, yeah, uh, yeah, just yeah. There's yeah. Your information uh, might be, uh, or an interpretation of the Templars might be, uh, you know, about 180 degree difference from uh, Gary. But it it, it, it it seems like the. the Templars. How so? How, how, so, how, how so? Which part of his interpret? Which part of? Uh, uh, he, he's looking at. Uh, Mace, uh, uh, Gary would is going to be looking at. Um, uh, uh, secret societies is more of a nefarious group, and yeah, you know, you're presenting them more as. Uh, in a spiritually, yeah, illuminated group of people, and it seems like if they are have brought proof of Jesus out of the Talpia tomb, or where the churches the uh sepulchre or what you know, or one of the various holy sites in Jerusalem it, it, it seems that okay they're preserving um the truth i uh, you know, i i i think most of us would agree that's a good good thing um it's just interesting that I'm not sure everyone would but i i agree with that yes yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's just uh, you know um, later. Yeah, that that aspect of a what uh, secret order you know, or you know, like the Duke of Burgundy's the uh, order of the Golden Fleece. Yeah, uh, okay. The, the, there's like a, a secretiveness to it, but yeah, you know, they're also doing uh, good. Uh, Things I you know, uh, you know may, maybe somewhere down the the road from the the, the Crusades things changed and and they got you know crossed over into something far different than the original you know uh, concepts holding the warrior monks together. Um, but it, it, it's just really interesting, and uh, it's you know kind, kind of like uh, an unintended balance over the next couple, uh, or th- this week and next week. Well, so all right, so one 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 of the things where I eventually get to in my in my book, you know, is a sort of a theme of of the story. You know, what one of the possibilities, and again, because I'm writing fiction, I can I uh, it allows me to have as an example, I can have a, a character, and I mentioned the, the neo-Nazi Katharina. 
she can believe certain things. Like she can believe that Christianity is too weak for the Nazis as a religion, and then she can go right. into, and research. So she can sort of carry that water for me. It doesn't necessarily mean that I believe that Christianity is a weak religion or that I believe right. that, that um, Caesar's Messiah, the argument is real or not. But I, I can explore those possibilities through one of my characters. And so that's the advantage I have right. in fiction is I, as I can do that. So similarly, one of the possibilities, um, when we talk about secret societies and are they good or are they bad, one of the possibilities, and, and we, before we can answer that question, we have to think back and why were societies secret to begin with. And the reason for that oftentimes was because if the church found out what they were doing, whether it was you know, studying astronomy or was it studying medicine or studying whatever it was, that the church didn't like a lot of the things these people were doing, okay? They didn't like science. Mm-hmm. They didn't like uh, anything that questioned the, the primacy of the church. And so people had to do these things in secret. So this whole idea of the separation of church and state that we end up with here in America with our Bill of Rights, well, you know, who who was who many of the founding fathers were Freemasons. And, and I'm not going to get too deep into this now, but many people agree with me when I say that the Freemasons inherited man, many of their teachings and many of their beliefs from the Templars. And, of course, the Templars were, were, were exhibit A in what kinds of bad things happen when you don't have a separation of church and state. They mm-hmm. were a product, they're, they're, they're being outlawed and tortured and imprisoned was a product of the Pope and the King of France getting together and saying, hey, let's outlaw these guys, take their money, take their lands, imprison them, you know, let's get together. Because there was not a separation of church and state then, because of the, church, the church had so much power at that point to do what it wanted. And so you know, the Templars understood the importance of a separation of church and state, which I think is what you know, most Americans would believe is important to this day. And so, you know, why were the Templars and why were the, the, the Order of the Golden Fleece and today the, the, the Freemasons, you know, why are there secret societies? Well, the answer to that is because oftentimes if you do these things out in public, you are persecuted for it. And so uh, in my story, one of the possibilities, you know, what is the Templar treasure that was hidden back then here in America – well, maybe the, the treasure itself isn't monetary. It's this concept of liberty and duality and balance and all those human rights that we talk about. But maybe that's the kind of thing that took, 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 uh, was rooted in the early days of the Templars and, and grew into what we now know as this great experiment in democracy here in the United States of America. Um, so that's one of the yeah. possibilities is that Templar treasure is – Really, our Bill of Rights. Uh, it, it, and you know, with the you know, you're, you know, what you're talking about since you're uh, a lawyer and you know the uh, Constitution and Bill of Rights, uh, you know, you know the founding documents. It does have a balance, uh, you know, separation of church and state, and yeah, and yeah, you know, just. If some of the listeners are, you know, hopefully, you know, they're realizing that, you know, 
like like me where you know, if you, you do look at the balance in uh in this founding documents it 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 almost seems like the the masonic influence of the writers uh we're, we're looking back to you know their forefathers uh, 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 like the Templars had you know kind of got this idea going, and you know we're, we're really trying to find a, a a balance between what they believe versus the uh, like authoritarianism of you know the the the, the uh, early 14th century church that persecuted right. them. And it just right. and like 400 years later, they get kind of get their revenge. Oh, hey, uh, you know we have a place here where's you know, you know balance, uh, you know. So you know we're kind of free from you. Yeah, well, it's, it's revenge. I'm not sure it's revenge as much as just an, an evolution. You know, this, these kinds of concepts mm-hmm. take time, you know, hundreds of years. But just the idea of uh, uh, valuing the individual. Individual rights, so as opposed to, you know, back then where where whether you, whether it was the, you know, if you were a serf, your lord could do whatever he wanted to, or if you if you were accused by the church or something that there was you know there was no due process or all these individual rights that we, you know, that we we now take for granted. But this was an evolution, you know, the Enlightenment and, and the Renaissance and all these concepts, all these ideas. A lot of these ideas. People forget that Europe was the backwards part of the world back in the 7th, 8th, 9th, 10th century, 11th century, the Dark Ages. And it was the Middle East that was progressive and enlightened and had science and, and freedoms and stuff. And so when the Templars left Europe in, in the you know, early parts of the 1100s and came over to the Middle East, their, their eyes were opened up to all these concepts of, that they had never heard of before, never seen before, these ideas of... of of liberty and individual rights and and duality and balance, all that stuff. And so they brought that stuff back with them to Europe. The early the early roots of of the Enlightenment period and the Renaissance that comes from many of those ideas come from the Templars and the exposure they had in the Middle East. And so again, we think of it today as as you know they're so backwards over there, and you know they are a lot of a lot of the things that they do, obviously. But it wasn't always that way. A thousand years ago, it was the other way around. Um, but anyway, so the the, the the big concept here is, is that th- that maybe, as I said before, maybe the, the the real treasure of the Templars was their their belief in things, and it led to things like the Bill of Rights and this experiment in democracy. Mm-hmm. And maybe that was what really they what they brought over to America, even more than their physical treasures. Uh, yeah, it's a uh, point well taken, and it's. Speaking of all of this uh, balance, um, you know, one of the characters in your book, uh, um, is part of a seems seems like it's becoming a uh, theme for Nightlight. Um, you know, uh, there's a uh, Bruce's cat's name is Squidward. 
I had no idea what you were talking about. Yeah, why is SpongeBob becoming a reoccurring uh, uh, theme on Nightlight? Uh, it just, uh, you know, when Mark Dweziak <laughs> was uh, with us a few weeks ago, yeah, he's talking about. Uh, yeah, interviewing Clancy Brown uh, f- for his Sh- Shawshank Redemption book, and it's it's, <laughs> it's uh, I don't know what's going on with, with that one. It's, uh, uh, that uh, that Squidward just kind of caught me off guard, but it, it was yeah. Well, so to, 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 to shed some light on that for, for the <laughs> listeners, one of my characters, yeah, he's sort of a sort of a you know a, a nerdish type character, but he's got a cat named Squidward. We named after because he's a big SpongeBob fan, even though he's a grown adult, but he loves SpongeBob, and so he named his cat Squidward uh, after the after one of the characters in, in SpongeBob. And um, you know, again, one of the fun things about being able to write fiction is you, you can do stuff like that and have sort of quirky characters. And um, he's at he he. Uh, well, I'm not going to get into what it is, but but it, it may be that that the Templar treasure is buried on land that he inherited from his grandfather. And so, you know, one of the things that happens is there's a fight over this land uh, to try to have access to be able to, to dig up what they think might be the treasure. But uh, but he and Squidward are, are standing guard <laughs> over the land. So um, <laughs> I didn't see that one coming, Mark. I didn't know where you're going with that. Good good job. You got me on that. Yeah. yeah uh, I, 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 don't know. I, I guess I just wasn't wearing my tinfoil helmet for that. You know, <laughs> moment that, that 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 idea developed, but yeah, as you uh, write your books, you know, you know, this might be a moment to you know help uh, authors who are uh, kind of stuck at the moment. You know, hit hit, hit that. Uh, wall and yeah, you know, don't know what to do with their uh, work. You know, this might be like a <clears throat> teaching moment. Uh, but you know, since you're a you know an attorney and you're always, you know, it seems like you're trying to yeah, you know, just doing you know, a little bit of profiling of. Just people you're dealing with in the office or <clears throat> at, at, you know, along the street, and you know, your books are filled with these you know, little anecdotes about uh, the characters. And it's like in, in the in the book we're talking about uh, today. Yeah. You talk about bankers uh, hate taking risks. They like things just being neat and orderly. And uh, Katrina says, you know, just makes the uh, you know observation: <clears throat> luck runs out, skill is constant. Yeah, so these little pithy. Uh, sta- so my, my my wife teases me. She calls them my my little pithy statements that I like to. Little aphorisms or little, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so I I, um, I do like to put those kinds of things. I think I think those those add to the reading experience. I think when when you're when you're reading, 
you know, people like to be entertained, of course, but they also like to be a little bit educated as they go along. And so if you can have a, a character make a statement and, and the reader says, yeah, yeah, or nod, or just say, yeah, yeah. So, so I think what you're getting on is, you know, what, what's, the, what's the advice to other, uh, you know, younger writers that I would give? And that is I, I take copious notes in my life. Like whenever somebody says something or I hear something or I read something that I think is worthy of remembering – I, I write it down. So my, my house, my office especially, is littered with little yellow sticky you know, things. And then when it comes time to write, I have a stack of these little notes I've made, whether it's you know, as I get out of the shower or after I go for a jog in the morning or in the car as I'm driving, I'm scribbling things out. I have a stack of these little sticky notes, basically, that have little thoughts or sayings or insights. And I try to have characters you know, incorporate those into the story. And I just think that adds a layer of richness to the story that may not have been there before. You know, not that not that I'm so insightful or so uh, you know so much smarter than other people that I know these things. But when I hear them, I write them down because no one can remember that mm-hmm. stuff. You know, six months later you go to write the book, and who knows what it was you you heard back in, in February. But um, so I try to write that stuff down. So I just think that anytime you can add that another layer of richness to your writing, whether it's, you know, whether it's descriptions or whether it's insights or whether, whatever it is, it just adds to the experience. I, I, you know, I wish, I wish I was better at that. I always feel like, you know, I, I, every time I do one of those, I think, Oh, I wish I'd done more of those. I wish there was one every paragraph. You know, I I don't have that many, unfortunately, but. um, Yeah. I, 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 I liked, uh, I think another one, Katarina says, uh, "Arrogance is a roadblock on the highway to wisdom." Yes, another. Yes, I heard that once and and wrote it down. I can't remember who said it, but um, well, that, see, that's the other thing. So Katarina, even though she is the villain, and that's another thing I think um, some young writers may uh, may not have mastered uh, that I've I've learned over the years, and that is is that you don't want your villains to be completely villainous. You know, you want them to have admirable qualities. You want you you want readers to at least maybe not like them, but at least appreciate where they're coming from. And similarly, you don't want your heroes to be, you know, so virtuous that they're that they're comic book characters. You know, even heroes have to have flaws and have to make mistakes and have to have uh, things that maybe the reader doesn't like about them. Because again, that's the world. That's the real world. People, very, there's very few people in the world. Who are, who are all black or all white um, from a moral point of view. You know, most people are somewhere in the middle. You know, maybe they're 70% good and 30% bad or vice versa. But there's very few people who are, you know, completely evil or completely good. And so it's important not to populate your books with comic book characters who are just one way and not the other. So I think nuance um, nuance is important. And, and so, so the Katarina character, she's probably not all that likable, but but she's at least a little bit admirable in the fact that she you know she's she's accomplished a lot of important things and some of her insights may make you say huh yeah that's an interesting point so even though her her you know we don't agree with what she's trying to accomplish um we do appreciate some of the things she thinks and does mhm it another um interesting a- aspect 
of your work is you, know, you do include uh, science. Yeah, you know, it's yeah, you know, it's it's not presented as you know only like Newton and Einstein and Tesla could understand it. It's just you know, it's you know, just stuff that you know just kind of pushes you know, the reader a a a, a, a little uh, bit more to you know, uh, understand uh, uh, the. The, the concepts of introducing more proof of something like Atlantis, and you know, one uh, one of the things that's you know stuck out uh, yeah, to me is yeah you know, the concept of nostophilia with the uh, <laughs> from your echoes uh, uh, of <laughs> Atlantis with the uh, cougars swimming to Pompano Beach. Oh, I, I, I think it's uh, the, the eels. I mean, uh, swimming eels, out yeah, to yeah, yeah. Um, yeah the, the, uh, the eels I, congregating in the middle. Of, yeah. So, so nostophilia is a concept. Uh, it comes from the same word as nostalgia. And essentially, what it is is that embedded in certain animals is this. Uh, instinctive desire to return to their native homeland, to their ancestral homeland. And what we have uh, in, in the case of both North American eels and European eels is that when, they, when it comes time to spawn, they, they're freshwater animals. They come down the rivers and streams of North America and of Europe, and they, and they go out into the Atlantic Ocean, and they swim out and they meet in the middle along the North Atlantic, uh, along the, uh, North Atlantic Ridge, and they meet the, the cousins from North America and the cousins from Europe. They meet in the middle at an area that we think may have been the ancient homeland of Atlantis. And the idea is that at some point back in their history, the eels remember that being their homeland and that when Atlantis collapsed, these freshwater eels, which probably lived in streams and, 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 and rivers in, on Atlantis, had no choice but to swim through the salt water to get back to land, whether it's North America or Europe, but that, that still thousands of years later they go back there to spawn together. And we have a similar thing with, with the butterflies off the northern coast of South America where mm-hmm. thousands and thousands of them fly north out towards the mid-Atlantic Ridge and they start circling around and around where they think they're supposed to be an island and there's not. And eventually these these butterflies just run out of run out of they collapse and they and they fall into the sea and they die. But you know, apparently this nostophilia, this this instinct, is even stronger than the survival instinct because these but than the survival instinct. Pardon me, because these butterflies just fly out to do this. So um, yeah, so there's obviously the science that goes into some of this stuff. I thought you were going to talk about the whole uh, hydrogen. Um, uh, you know, possibility of turning hydrogen uh, salt water into energy that I talk about. Uh, an inventor named John Kansius back in 2007 uh, was experimenting with radio okay. waves as a way to treat cancer. Okay. I, thought, I thought that's where you're going with that. Oh, no, no I, I, the, the 
I, I just thought it was another, you know, just, just the science that you, you, you do introduce. I, I don't it's, you know. The, behavioral uh, generational behavior uh, it's uh, kind, kind of like he, human profiling a, a, a little bit it, you're just kind of looking at you know we, we have documentation of what these anim- how these animals uh, behave you know what but but why are they going swimming so far to a place that no longer exists it, it sounds exactly. like at, at, at there, there has to be a reason. What what is it? And I, you know, your explanation is as good good as any other that's out there. It's just you know, one of those interesting aspects that you introduced to your book. I and you know, you do have the uh, uh, you know pyramid saltwater. Uh, thing. If you want to get into that in in the last, let me reply to what you just said, Mark, because I think I think um, what you're saying is 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 a is a really important point, and, and and probably the question I get more often than any other question is why is it that um, you're sort of um, solving these riddles when no one's been able to solve them before you know what what why is it that all of a sudden this is coming out your research and and you know other people I'm not alone but people like Scott Walter and others but why is this coming out now and it hasn't come out yet and so there's really two answers to that one is the the internet you know having the internet you, you couldn't have done this 25 or 30 years ago cuz there's just no way to access all the different pieces of information that you need, much less be able to communicate via email with other researchers. So it just it's, this world was, was just too large back then. There was too much data that you couldn't put your fingers on back then that you can do now. But I think also um, I, I attribute a lot of it to the importance of a liberal arts education. And when I say that, um, you know, you mentioned science. So, you know, I'm not a scientist, but I did take science classes uh, as a liberal arts uh, college student, and so I have a, a, right. a decent amount of knowledge in science. But when you look at these at these mysteries, you can't just take one discipline, academic discipline, and expect to solve it. You can't you can't be just an archaeologist and only look at the things that come out of the ground. You also need to look at maps. So you need to be a cartographer. You need to be like Scott Walter and be a geologist and look at stone. You need to be a scientist and look at some of the science behind this stuff. You need to be a linguist and look at some of the language evolution. You need to be a historian, of course. You need to be uh, you know, this, uh, a religious scholar to understand the religious aspects of this. But, but my point is you need, to be, you need to be able to look at this using 8 or 10 or 12 different academic disciplines in order to put all the pieces of the puzzle together. It's not all just archaeology. That's not the only way, that's not the only piece of evidence that you're going to find here. And so it really does take someone with a liberal arts education, and more importantly, somebody who's not so rigid in their thinking, that they think that only their particular field of study has all the answers. And that's what we run into a lot, is, you know, I know a historian who insists if it wasn't written down in a book someplace, it can't really have happened. Well, you know, not everybody wrote things down. The Native American culture 
has oral history. Well, that's not that's not written down. I don't care. Well, that you're just you're, you're just being closed-minded now. Okay, the Native American version of what happened in America, their oral history is incredibly important, and I would argue just as, if not more, accurate than our written history. Okay, we all know that written history can be inaccurate. So, the oral history they consider sacred. They are very careful with it. It's again, it's sacred to them, and so they're so that it's, it's so it tends to be it tends to be very accurate. Anyway, my but point is this whole uh, the, the, in order to understand what's going on, in order to really to get to the bottom of this, you need to look at it through lots of different intellectual disciplines. It's not just history. It's not just archaeology. It's not just linguistics. It's not just religion. It's not just geology. It's not just science. It's all sorts of different things. And in this particular case, we looked at you know biology with these with these eels and these butterflies, mm-hmm. and 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 that shed a lot of light into the possibilities of where Atlantis was and evidence that it did exist. Yeah, it's a, yeah, Dave. We have uh, ten minutes left. Uh, Wow. Okay. <laughs> Time flew. Wow. Yeah. Um, you know, what are some you know, new directions that uh, you know, non-mainstream writing is taking? And you know, uh, you know maybe a follow-up question is, uh, you know, do you have? Some uh, upcoming uh, lectures or uh, presentations, appearances, road trips, and, you know, so, so, yeah, something sure. like that. So, so my my first novel, um, which was a legal thriller, came out about twenty years ago, late nineteen ninety nine, just almost twenty years ago. And you know, back then it was before digital and you know, Kindle and, and Nook didn't exist. Um, and back then, the the, the big thing was. You know, to get try to get book signings at the local Barnes and Noble or Border store, and that was really the way you moved books. Like that was you know, that was your chance to interact with fans, to uh, to get your name out there. Uh, people wanted to get autographed copies to give as gifts, um, and I, you know, that for a long time, that's that's essentially what I did as a as a as a young author, and of course that's changed a lot. T- today, probably ninety percent of the books that I sell are digital as opposed to paper books. Um, you know, there is no more borders anymore. There's probably only half as many Barnes and Nobles. I can't remember the last time I was at one of them doing a book signing. I don't even bother anymore just because, you know, people don't go there anymore. People buy their books online or, 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 or digitally. And so that whole thing has changed dramatically. And so for, for, for writers, uh, you know, it's a reflection of the way readers experience their books. Probably most of your readers uh, read digitally now, and to be honest, you know, as much as I love the written, uh, the, the paper, the feel of a paper book in my hand, I don't blame them. And in one of the things that I do in my my novels, even though they're they're fiction, I include images of the sites and the artifacts and the artwork that I talk about because um, I think it's important for the readers to understand. I'm not making that stuff up. That that even though the book is fiction. These artifacts and this painting and this site, they're real, and you can see them here. Um, and the great thing about being able to do it digitally is those can be, those can be high-resolution color photographs. 
I think that enhances the experience mm-hmm. instead of a grainy black and white picture in you know what, what, what it would have been what it is even today if you were to buy a, a paperback version of one of my books. Now instead, if you happen to read it digitally, you can really get in there and see the detail of the photograph and the image. So that's changed a lot as well. And I, I, you know, I remember reading the Da Vinci Code and getting on my computer and, and trying to find pictures of the paintings Dan Brown was talking about, and just so I wanted to look at them myself. And so right away I said, if I ever do something like that, if I ever write a book like that, I'm going to include images. And I don't think most fiction mm-hmm. writers do that still, but I've done that for all nine books in this series, and I think it really enhances right. the experience. Uh, but that's something that's that, that's 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 a change that I imagine other, you know, it's 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 no it's no more expensive to do it that way from a publication point of view, from a production point of view. Again, because it's all digitized, anybody can drop a PDF photo into a, into a file. So it's it's you know it doesn't add to the to the difficulty or expense of producing the book. Uh, so that's that's a change I think. But mostly, I think the change is is the is the reading habits of most people that. Most people do it digitally, um, and of course that it just didn't exist 12, 15 years ago at all. Okay, and um, are are you going to be speaking at any uh, oh, Masonic right. lodges? Half, sorry, sorry, the second half of your question. Yeah, so a, a lot of a lot of what I do, um, I do give a, a lot of lectures at Masonic lodges, a lot of lectures at Historical societies, you know, I, I drive around. I was at a Masonic Lodge last night. Um, you know, I, I do find I, I'm not a Freemason myself. I do find that um, a number of Freemasons are interested in this material because because of the tie between the Freemasons historically and the Knights Templar. And I think that um, this this stuff resonates with with many members of Masonic lodges because they are trying to understand why they do some of their ritual, why they why some of their symbology is what it is, and oftentimes those answers are not apparent and then when they start looking back into the into the history and into the uh, the Knights Templar motivation, some of this stuff um starts to make a little more sense. So I, I find that um that that that's a group of readers who are very interested in the subject matter. So um so again I do I do a lot of those lectures. Um but um, you know, mostly I, I, I talk to people, you know, writing groups. I talk to historical societies. I talk to, um, I'm, I'm, I talk to high schools a lot. Uh, we we have not yet gotten to the point where this stuff is taught as part of the mainstream curriculum in American schools. I think we're getting close to that point. Uh, I think that more and more people realize that this whole idea of Christopher Columbus. That we, yesterday we celebrated Columbus Day, or we. we we recognize Columbus Day. Many people didn't celebrate it, obviously. People recognize it. But, you know, the idea that he was the first person to cross the Atlantic, um, I think that's becoming more and more uh, the cause for people to roll their eyes and say, come on, you know, let's, let's, let's get past that. Uh, and even if he was the first one to cross, he's not really a heroic figure, not something that we want uh, to have as a role model Based, you know, based on the way he treated the Native Americans once he got here, um, you know, we we can do better. We 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 can find better heroes than that as a society. Right, and yeah, you, know, you have more and more people 
just easily get, getting these uh, you know, ho- holidays passed, and you know they're just uh, just calling it uh, Indigenous Peoples Day. Right. What, yeah. Look. Right. Ironically, um, Columbus Day this year was only one day after uh, October thirteenth, which is the day the Templars were outlawed. Thirteen oh seven, unlucky Friday the thirteenth. Yeah. Um, the Native American perspective on this. Um, we got probably a couple minutes. So I could quickly get this in. One of the one okay. of the really uh, fascinating things and fulfilling things is to have Native American tribal leaders tell me that what we think happened did. They tell me that Prince Henry Sinclair and the Knights Templar were here before Columbus, and they built the Newport Tower, and they left all these carvings around New England, and the Native American oral history in New England confirms that. Okay, And, and one of the arguments that they always make is, look, we, we know this happened because it's part of our oral history, but more importantly, who else do you think could have possibly uh, – how else could they have come over here unless they came in peace? unless they came respectfully. Back then, there was no way, there were too many Native Americans, there was no way that a group of Europeans could fight their way onto the continent. Now, the pilgrims were welcomed here because earlier Europeans had come over in peace and done so respectively. respectfully. Um, but the Native Americans make the argument, I think it's very compelling, is that the first Europeans that came over here came in friendship. And that's why later Europeans, like the pilgrims, were welcomed. But it was the first group that came over, and they came over and they had a shared, uh, shared set of values. They came over and they and they treated the Native Americans with respect and with dignity. And and you know if we're going to celebrate Columbus Day uh, as a holiday, it should be with an eye towards that kind of behavior, uh, the treatment with dignity and respect, and not the way um, you know later later explorers came over here with an idea uh, to enslave and corrupt and you know, take advantage of that. that you know, that's that's not the role models we want to be teaching our children. I don't think. Uh, right, and you know, we're down to just under two minutes. Uh, you know, the earlier uh, the Prince Henry Sinclair and uh, is something we get into another time. And you know, one of my favorite topics is the Saint Brendan voyage, and you know. Yeah. Uh, when Greg was on with Barbara last night, he was talking about you know there's estimated uh, like hundred million Native uh, American uh, you know, population here. I, it's like uh, you know with that size gr- group of people and you know, like a hundred people uh, climbing off the Mayflower, you're pretty much over. Out, outnumbered, so it, it, you, know, <laughs> exactly. you, you better be on your best behavior. So, but yeah, we're uh, down to a minute. Uh, you know, Barbara's telling me you know, we need to wrap up. So, uh, but th- thank you so much, uh, Dave, for being our guest uh, t- tonight. Uh, we'll have to do it again so- sometime soon when you get, get your new book out. And my pleasure, uh, Mark. I, I would I would love it, to do that. Yeah, yeah I, I really enjoy. I, I love the fact that you're such a, uh, a knowledgeable and, and passionate host and so i always enjoy being on with you yeah oh uh, yeah we, we we like having you as a guest so uh yeah barbara uh we, we have a busy week uh we have a special show uh you know, we're pre-record on friday and 
Barbara is going to be on a show, uh, has a show tomorrow night with Mary Joyce at 9 to 10 and another show Thursday night. So busy, busy week. But uh, th- th- thanks, Dave, and we'll see everyone tomorrow night.